Black cis women have different experiences than white cis women, right? Black trans women have different experiences than white trans women. And so I think that we just need to complicate when we talk about, when we say woman, we need to be more exacting with our terms and about who we're speaking about. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get commercial-free versions of every episode, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, starting with a TED Talk by Norman Spack and clips today from Sex Out Loud, The Trans Advocate, Love and Radio, and Politically Reactive. I want you all to think about the third word that was ever said about you, or if you were delivering, about the person you were delivering. And you can all mouth it if you want or say it out loud. It was, the first two were, it's a... Well, it shows you that I also deal with issues where there's not certainty of whether it's a girl or a boy, so the mixed, me- the mixed answer is very, is very appropriate. Of course, now the answer often comes not at birth, but at the ultrasound, unless the uh, prospective parents choose to be surprised like we all were. But I want you to think about what it is that leads to that statement on the third word, Because the third word is a description of your sex. And by that I mean made by a description of your genitals. Now, as a pediatric endocrinologist, I used to be very, very involved, and still somewhat am, in cases in which there are mismatches in the externals or between the externals and the internals, and we literally have to figure out what is the description of your sex. But there is nothing that is definable at the time of birth that would define you. And when I talk about definition, I'm talking about your sexual orientation, we don't say, it's a gay boy, a lesbian girl. Those situations don't really define themselves more into the second decade of life. Nor do they define your gender, which is different from your anatomic sex, describes your self-concept. Do you see yourself as a male or female or somewhere in the spectrum in between? That sometimes shows up in the first decade of life, but it can be very confusing for parents because it is quite normative for children to act in a cross-gender play and way, and that, in fact, there are studies that show that even 80% of children who act in that fashion 
will not persist in wanting to be the opposite gender at the time when puberty begins. But at the time that puberty begins, that means between about age 10 to 12 in girls, 12 to 14 in boys, with breast budding or two to three times increase in the gonads in the case of genetic males, by that particular point, the child who says they are in the absolute wrong body is almost certain to be transgender and is almost is ext- extremely unlikely to change those feelings no matter how anybody tries reparative therapy or any other noxious things. Now, this is relatively rare. So I had relatively little personal experience with this. And my experience was more typical only because I had an adolescent practice and I saw someone age 24, went through Harvard, genetically female, went through Harvard with three male roommates who knew the whole story, a registrar who always listed uh, his name on course lists as a male name, and came to me after graduating saying, help me. I know you know a lot of endocrinology, and indeed I've treated a lot of people who were born without gonads. This wasn't rocket science, but I made a deal with him. I'll treat you if you teach me. And so he did. And what an education I got from taking care of all the members of his support group. And then I got really confused because I thought it was relatively easy at that age to just give people the hormones of the of the gender in which they were affirming. But then my patient married, and he married a woman who had been born as a male, had married as a male, had two children, then went through a transition into female, and now this delightful female was attached to my male patient, in fact, got legally married because they showed up as a man and a woman, and who knew, right? (laughs) (laughs) And while I was confused about, I was confused, does this make someone so gay? Does this make so-and-so straight? I was getting sexual orientation confused with, with gender identity. And my patient said to me, look, 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 you got, if you just think of the following, you'll get it right. Sexual orientation is who you go to bed with. Gender identity is who you go to bed as. Huh? Okay. And subsequently learned from the many adults, I took care of about 200 adults, I learned from them that if I didn't look peek as to who their partner was in the waiting room, I would never be able to guess better than chance, whether they were gay, straight, bi, or asexual in their affirmed gender. In other words, one thing has absolutely nothing to do with the other. And the data show it. Now, as I took care of the 200 adults, I found it extremely painful. These people were, many of them, had had to give up Um, so much of their lives, sometimes their parents would reject them, siblings, their own children, and then their divorcing spouse would uh, forbid them from seeing their children. 
It, it was so awful. But why did they do it at 40 and 50? Because they felt they had to affirm themselves before they would kill themselves. And indeed, the rate of suicide among untreated transgendered people is among the highest in the world. So what to do? I was intrigued in going to a conference in Holland where they are experts in this and saw the most remarkable thing. They were treating young adolescents after giving them the most intense psychometric testing of gender. And they were treating them by blocking the puberty that they didn't want. Because basically, kids look about the same, each sex, until they go through puberty, at which point, if you feel you're in the wrong sex, you feel like Pinocchio becoming a donkey. The fantasy that you had, that your body will change to be who you want it to be with puberty, actually is nullified by the puberty you get. And and they fall apart. So that's why putting the puberty on hold. Why on hold? You can't just give them the opposite hormones that young. They'll end up stunted in growth. And you think you can have a meaningful conversation about the fertility effects of such treatment with a 10-year-old girl, a 12-year-old boy? So this buys time in the diagnostic process for four or five years so that they can work it out. They can have more and more testing. They can live without feeling their bodies are running away from them. And then in a program they call 12, 16, 18, around age 12 is when they give the blocking hormones. And then at age 16, with retesting, they requalify to receive. Now, remember, the blocking hormones are reversible. But when you give the hormones of the opposite sex, you now start spouting breasts and facial hair and voice, depending on what you're using. And those effects are permanent or require surgery to remove or electrolysis. And you can never really affect the voice. So this is serious. And this is 15, 16 year old stuff. And then at 18, they're eligible for surgery. And while there's no good surgery for female to males, generally, the male to female surgery has fooled gynecologists. That's how good it can be. So uh, I looked at how, how their patients were doing, and I looked at patients who just looked like everybody else. They looked, except they were puberty delayed. But once they gave them the hormones consistent with the gender they affirm, they look beautiful. You would never be able to pick them out in a crowd. So at that point, I decided I'm going to do this. This is really where the pediatric endocrine realm comes in. Because, in fact, if you're going to deal with it at kids age 10, 12, 10 to 14, that's pediatric endocrinology. So I brought some kids in. And this now became the standard of care. And Children's Hospital was behind by my showing them the kids before and after. People who never got treated and people who wish to be treated. And pictures of the Dutch. They came to me and said, you got to do something for these kids. Well, where were these kids before? They were out there suffering is where they were. So... um we started a program in 2007. It became the first program of its kind, but it's really of the Dutch kind in North America. And since then, we have 160 patients. 
Did they come from all Afghanistan? No. They came, 75% of them came from within 150 miles of Boston. And um, some came from England. Jackie had been abused in Midlands, England. She's 12 years old there. She was living as a girl, but she was being beaten up. It was a horror show. They had to homeschool her. And the reason the British were coming was because they would not treat anybody with anything under age 16, which means they were consigning them to an adult body no matter what happened, even if they tested them well. Jackie, on top of it, was by virtue of skeletal markings destined to be six feet five. Okay? And yet you had just begun a male puberty. Well, I did something a little bit innovative because I do know hormones and that estrogen is much more potent in sl- closing epiphyses, the growth plates, and stopping growth than testosterone is. So we blocked our testosterone with the blocking hormone. Uh, but we added estrogen not at 16, but at 13. And so here she is at 16 on the left. And on her 16th birthday, she went to Thailand where they would do a genitoplastic surgery. They will do it 18 now. And she ended up 5'11". But more than that, she has a normal breast size because by blocking testosterone, every one of our patients has normal breast size if they get to us at the appropriate age. Not too late. And on the far right, there she is. She went public, semifinalist in the Miss England competition. Okay? The judges debated as to, can they do this? Can can they make her? And one of them quipped, I'm told, but she has more natural self than half the other contestants. (laughs) (laughs) And, And... some of them have been rearranged a little bit, but it's, it's all her DNA. And she's become a remarkable spokeswoman. And, um, and, and she was offered contracts as a model, at which point she teased me where she said, you know, I might have had a better chance as a model if you made me six feet one. Go, <laughs> go figure. So this picture, I think, says it all. It really says it all. These are uh, Nicole and brother Jonas, identical twin boys, and proven to be identical, in which Nicole had affirmed herself as a girl as early as age three. At age seven, they changed her name and came to me at the very beginnings of a male puberty. Now, you can imagine looking at Jonas at only 14, that male puberty is early in this family, because he looks more like a 16-year-old. But it makes the point all the more why you have to be conscious of where the patient is. Nicole is on pubertal blockade in here. And Jonas is just going the biologic control. This is what Nicole would look like if we weren't doing what we were doing. He's got a prominent Adam's apple. He's got angular bones to the face, a mustache. And you can see there's a height difference because he's gone through a growth spurt that she won't get. Now Nicole is on estrogen. She has a bit of a form to her. Um, this family went to the White House last uh, spring because of their work in overturning an a anti-discrimination. There was a, there was a bill that would block uh, the right of transgender people in Maine to use public bathrooms, 
And it looked like the bill was going to pass, and that would have been a problem. But Nicole went personally to every legislator in Maine and said, I can do this. If they see me, they'll understand, well, I'm no threat in the ladies' room, but I can be threatened in the men's room. And then they finally got it. So where do we go from here? Well, we still have a ways to go in terms of anti-discrimination. There are only 17 states that have an anti-discrimination law against a discrimination in housing, employment, uh, public accommodation. Only 17 states, and five of them are in New England. We need less expensive drugs. They cost a fortune. And this isn't going to break anybody's budget. This is not that common. But the risks of not doing anything for them not only puts all of them at risk of losing their lives to suicide, but it also says something about whether we are a truly inclusive society. Let's talk about TERFs. Um, I want you to define what a TERF is, T-E-R-F, and and we'll take it from there. Sure. So TERF is a term that basically, it's an acronym for trans-exclusive radical feminist. Um, It's a a rather recent term. Um, There was a time where a large body of feminists, and especially radical feminists, held anti-trans attitudes. Um, This goes all the way back to the 70s, and there's Janice Raymond's infamous book, The Transsexual Empire. Um, But over time, as trans activism has gained momentum, as a lot of feminists, if not most feminists, have become to realize that trans people are kind of allies in, you know, the movement to try to challenge you know, sexism, the challenging the gender binary is an important part of challenging kind of, you know, gender hierarchies in our world and so on. So we've moved to a point where a lot of feminists are supportive of and allied with trans people and trans activism. However, there's a contingent of some people within, especially within radical feminism, who still hold a lot of the same old views of trans people. Um, And so the term TERF, which a lot of people who are called that refer to it as a slur, um, it actually was coined, uh, and there's a Kristen Williams article about it, if you want to search. She has written a lot about this, but she interviewed the people who coined it, and it was coined by cisgender radical feminists to distinguish between radical feminists who are supportive of or agnostic about trans people versus those who really strongly... Um, want to exclude us um, from feminism and who think that we are um, we're holding back the feminist movement as opposed to kind of being parallel with it. And so nowhere is this more on display in a real way um, 
than at the Michigan Women's Music Festival. So for people who don't know, the Michigan Women's Music Festival is an annual event where women um, create this camp from just on this land, right? They like just erect the whole thing and... Uh, and there's music and there's community and there's classes and there's shopping and there's different parts of camp. And it's very, you know, it's very feminist. It's very body positive. It's really into accessibility issues. It's anti-racist, at least in principle. Um, but they have at some point, because they've been around for decades, um, they had to get specific about what they were going to do about trans women. And in fact, they ejected a woman for, for outing herself saying she was trans. And from then on, they formed this policy, which said that the only women allowed at this women's event are women born women. And they use Y's, uh, the, the letter Y, um, meaning that you, you have to be born an assigned female at birth in order to uh, step foot in this really, you know, one of the largest gatherings of women on the planet and one of the longest running ones. And there have been protests for years and years and years. And we hear that now it's 2015 and it will be the last year of the Michigan women's music festival, which I think is good news. Uh, What about you? Um, I mean, I have a lot of feelings about it. I actually, um, the, basically the, the protests, uh, surrounding that are really what first got me into activism. Um, I had been, I mostly considered myself a performer and so I was doing trans activism by being an out trans person. And then in 2003, I went to Camp Trans, which was the annual protests of the Michigan Women Music Festival policy, excluding trans women. And that really evangelized me. And it was also really important with what ultimately led to um, kind of thinking about ideas that led to Whipping Girl, the way in which misogyny plays a role in how um, trans women are viewed um, and excluded in society. And specifically because uh, there was some acceptance within Michigan of people who were trans male identified, who used pronouns like he and him and yet trans women someone like myself who you know nowadays i've i've lived as a woman for 15 years i walk out the door every day of my life living as a woman and yet i'm you know seen as this problem and so i worked really hard for many years as partly with camp trans i was involved in it in two years and then after that i was kind of on my own writing about it a lot and i really really did hope that the policy would change. There were a number of years in there where it felt like it was going to be inevitable. And then I just feel like it's, it's stalled lately and it became clearer and clearer that no matter, no matter what happened, you know, that, that Lisa Vogel, who's the sole proprietor of, of the festival um, and a lot of the people who attend that they weren't going to budge. And so I mostly feel sad because there was a time that I really hoped it, things would change. Um, so that's kind of, I would say that's the main feeling I feel. Um, it's, it's, I don't think I would go there anyway, just because I know some trans women who have gone to the space. Um, and the politics about it are strange because 
they essentially had a a policy where trans women wouldn't be thrown out, but they would be seen as disrespecting the space. Um, and I know some people were there and it's definitely not a safe space for trans women to be. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't have gone there if they changed the policy at this point in my life. I might have when I was younger, but yeah. So I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. Well, and the thing that you, you talk about this in your book, but, but I experienced this firsthand with the, the one and only year that I went to Michigan, um, which is around the same time. I feel like you were there, but maybe it was maybe a little earlier. Um, there, there is an obscene amount of displays of masculinity at <laughs> Michigan women's music uh-huh. festival. And by that, I mean, butches, boys with an eye, uh, trans men, gender queers, masculine of center people, um, people born and assigned female at birth who've had chest surgery, who are on hormones, who have facial hair, who could pass as men. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it seems entirely like a double standard that because those folks spent some of their lives as girls or young women, um, that they're quote unquote allowed in the space and not you who is a woman um, I mean, what do you make? I mean, do you just think that this is gender essentialism at, at, at its heart that they're just digging their heels in, or is there something, um, is, is there an element of misogyny in here as well? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, I think that there are several things. I, I definitely think misogyny is a part of it. Um, and, and I have a chapter in whipping girl called bending over backwards, um, that where I talk about this particular issue and bending over backwards because I kind of felt like they would bend over backwards to like come up with any argument they could just to keep trans women out. Um, and a lot of these arguments were very anti-feminist. And I, I think that there's some gender essentialism there that, you know, we, you know, used to be men or whatever. And we, or we've, you know, also arguments that, oh, well, we've had some male privilege. It's like, yeah, but if that, is your main, your main focus, then what about all these trans men and, and people who, once they leave Michigan, will, will leave and they'll live their lives as, as men? <laughs> um, so that clearly wasn't the answer. And then one of the things that I felt was overlooked at the time that I started doing activism about this when I wrote Whipping Girl was that a lot of this was really entrenched in misogyny. And it really hit home to me when a friend of mine at Camp Trans who worked the, the cars. So basically people from, as the cars were entering the festival, um, people from camp trans would try to convince people to realize the policy. Oh yeah. There's a, there's a really, really long line of people and, and they line up even before it opens. And so there's this, it's a kind of a captive audience. It's like waiting for concert tickets or something. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I remember this one, uh, this one, uh, trans male friend of mine, um, he was talking to people and in a car and one of them said, you know, why would trans women want to be here anyway? Aren't they afraid they'll break a nail? <laughs> and, you know, mm. yeah. <laughs> and I've encountered numerous things along these lines in the past. I definitely think misogyny is is also a part of it. Either the perception that trans women are, like, especially feminine or overtly feminine. Um, and we should say that... Uh, 
a lot of the people who go to Michigan, a lot of people who are radical feminists are against femininity. Yes, um, they eschew. I mean, yeah. I, as a femme, just so you know, I mean, as a femme, I, I felt, uh, excluded and also not safe in some situations um, because there, there also is anti-femme sentiment there. So like you said, there's anti-femininity on, on the land. Yeah, definitely. And so I, I think that that is also a major thread to this whole situation. I do think another thing that should be acknowledged is that um, I think that a lot of um a lot of, especially the lesbian community, um, part of the reason why I think trans men are kind of accepted in a way is that not all trans men have this experience, but a lot of them kind of come up through the dyke community. And so they get a chance to kind of prove to everyone that, hey, I'm trustworthy. I'm like, you know, part of the community before they transition. And they won't be completely accepted by everyone in the lesbian community, but I think there's more of a chance to, to give these people, you know, like the benefit of doubt where I feel like trans women don't get the benefit of the doubt because, you know, for me, um, you know, I mean, as I was moving through the world as male, I would never have gone into like a woman's only space or a lesbian space. I just would not do it. Right. Because I, I understood I have a certain amount of privilege and these spaces are meant for people who are marginalized in society in ways that I wasn't. Um, but then as soon as I became a woman, as soon as I transitioned and, you know, I was I identify as bisexual now, but I identified as a dyke at the time or I still identify as a dyke, but I identified as a lesbian at the time. And, you know, I mean, I had a partner who kind of had a long history in dyke communities. And so I think I was accepted because I was in this, this partnership with someone who was kind of seen as a legitimate cisgender, you know, queer woman. But, you know, if I hadn't, I mean, there's the, I think people don't give us the benefit of the doubt because we weren't from the community, but we never had the chance to. So I think that's another element. Um, some of it is gender essentialism. A lot of people talk about it being about socialization, about like, oh, being socialized male, you know, that's what the problem is. And I 100% don't buy that at all. I think that that's the biggest red herring out there. I've had conversations with people about this issue. And if in my experiences, when I talk to people, I said, well, what about a hypothetical um, person who is biologically female, who for some reason was raised male and lived their whole entire lives up until young adulthood as male before they came out as being female, uh, would you let that person in? And they all said yes. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not really about socialization. It's a mixture of essentialism and misogyny and, um, and you know, the acceptance of trans men and trans masculine people being more related to them fitting, either having been in the community or kind of not being seen as um, problematic in the same ways that trans women are. But I think this also really touches on one of the crucial pieces in your book, which is this idea that trans women are not trustworthy, you know, the trans woman as deceptive or dangerous. And mm -hmm. then the natural extension of that, which is that women and femininity is dangerous and deceptive and uh, can't, can't be trusted. I mean, don't you think that that's at play as well? 
Oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and one of the very first chapters, I think it's chapter two, um, in Whipping Girl, it's called Skirt Chasers. And it's about how the, uh, how the media depicts trans women. And I talk about mainstream media, you know, movies, TV shows at the time, et cetera, and about how trans women were either seen as, uh, either being not real women because we look too much like men or we're seen as deceivers who are potentially dangerous. And in the very last section of that, I talk about this very issue. I talk about Michigan Women's Music Festival, um, turf ideology and Janice Raymond's book. And going all the way back to her book, she talks about how, you know, all the reasons why trans women like aren't women because we don't look like women and all that. And then she turns around and then says, but then there's this deceptive type, you know, and she has this whole paragraph where she talks about trans women being let into women's only spaces would eventually, of course, lead to rape, right? Like deception and rape, you know, which is like straight out of a focus on the family ad circuit today. Um, So these ideas are really, really kind of entrenched in people's brains and sadly, a lot of people who are TERFs, um, they're kind of, they, they have no, they're not recognizing the fact that these are the same tropes that are used on women in general. These are the same tropes that are used against queer people, right? If a queer person doesn't, like, announce to someone that they're queer, some people will, like, go into the so-called gay panic and might freak out about it and can accuse them of deception. These are the same tropes that are being used over and over again to marginalize people, and it's a shame that they don't recognize that. Just a quick interruption because I want to give you a couple of definitions before we go to the next clip. Uh, You may have heard the term intersex before. I want to make sure everyone's on the same page. Just reading from Wikipedia, the top lines here, it says, Intersex people are born with any of several variations in sex characteristics, including chromosomes, gonads, sex hormones, or genitals that, according to the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, quote, do not fit the typical definitions for male or female bodies, unquote. So that's intersex. And then one other is the term endosex. And so that is just the opposite. If intersex is describing sex characteristics that do not fit the typical definitions, then endosex is describing sex characteristics that do fit the typical definitions for male or female bodies. The Eager Trans Child, Informed Consent, and Watchful Waiting. Much anti-trans literature, some of it sadly produced in the name of feminism, features sensational stories about young children undergoing sex reassignment surgery. These surgeries are, indeed, an everyday reality, 
but for intersex infants and children rather than endosex children who may be trans or gender nonconforming. Let us consider an endosex child at the age of seven who expresses a very strong cross-sex identity and has done so since the age of three or four, when first old enough to articulate a sense of sex or gender. Katie was designated male at birth, but has always insisted not only that she wants to transition, but that she is a girl. She has very diverse interests and isn't much concerned with conventional gender roles, but makes it very clear that whatever she's doing, she does as a girl. Further, having had time to get to know and understand this situation, her parents enthusiastically support her sense of female identity and also give positive reinforcement for her flexibility about gender roles and interests by sharing with her feminist classics like Free to Be You and Me. Coming from this positive outlook, Katie and her parents have a proposal for the professionals at the Supportive Gender Identity Center they found in their community. Why not arrange for her to have sex reassignment surgery as soon as possible, within the next year? This will resolve the body dysphoria that she experiences, as well as further solidifying her social identity. For example, at her school, where her identity as a girl is widely respected by teachers and peers, although there hasn't yet been a formal transition. Doubtless, the Gender Identity Center professionals would explain that while a formal social transition looks like a very constructive option, surgery at this point is both unnecessary and unethical. The simple reason is that Katie, no matter how strongly or confidently she identifies and lives as female, is not yet old enough to exercise the informed consent that surgery requires. Her parents, as loving and well-intentioned as they are, cannot make this decision on her behalf. Only she can do that, when old enough to fully appreciate the risks and consequences. And watchful waiting, to use the words of the WPATH standards of care, also gives Katie the time and space to test and confirm her identity and intentions during the remainder of her childhood years, with social transition as an excellent real-life experience to assist her in this process. Medical decisions can thus be keyed both to the necessities of her physical development and her maturing ability to consent in an informed way. At puberty, she will have the option of blockers to delay sex development in an undesired direction. Then, at 16, she can begin cross-sex hormone therapy, with surgery an option beginning at age 18. Although Katie and her family may find this delay in surgery a bit frustrating, we understand that it is meant to protect her autonomy and ability to make fully informed and mature decisions, giving the irreversible nature of surgery as well as its non-trivial medical risks. A professional might also reassure the eager parents that trans kids are quite capable of getting through childhood and adolescence before having surgery without any risks of lifelong gender confusion, especially when parents, teachers, and friends are supportive, as is certainly the case here. Contrast this ethical refusal to do genital surgery on a child, despite the enthusiastic desire of child and parents alike, 
With the routine readiness of professionals to perform intersex genital mutilation on intersex infants and children, who typically are not yet old enough to know or express their identities and wishes, based on notions of, by guess and by golly, of how the child's identity might develop. What could be a clearer indication of the small value placed on either the personal autonomy or bodily integrity of intersex people? Again, I emphasize that the scenario of Katie at age seven and her family seeking sex reassignment surgery is hypothetical and contrafactual. The whole point is that intersex genital mutilation needs to become equally so throughout the world. The fact that intersex genital mutilation is instead still widely practiced and can be promoted at a WPATH meeting is one cardinal measure of intersex oppression and endosex privilege. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. I didn't detransition in that moment or anything like that. I just decided that I wasn't ever going to kill myself. Um... So, yeah. There's no reason for me to be in California anymore. So I made plans to move back. And when I moved back, it was like, okay, like I'm tail between my legs. Like this is over. Like, yeah, it was like a white flag kind of situation. When I went back to Ohio, I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to be a woman, I'm going to like learn womanhood and I'm going to do this correctly. And, and I like bought a bunch of makeup and I like, I don't know, bought heels and like, I would, it was kind of an anxiety management thing for me. I would like put on a full face of makeup every morning just to like feel okay. Just to feel like, okay, people can't tell. I look normal. I didn't look normal. I looked like I had a I looked like I was wearing tons of makeup for no reason. I went to the Michigan Women's Festival. It was sort of a lesbian feminist music festival. And I had gone because they were having a detransition workshop. I remember the first shower that I took at the Michigan Women's Festival. 
it was open air showers and you waited in a line with a bunch of naked women to take a shower and it's women of all ages I realized that I had never been around that many naked women and especially that many naked women of all different kinds of ages you know it's not like you're 13 and you're with a bunch of 13 year olds in the school's gym taking showers it's like you're with women in their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s it tripped me out in this huge way oh my gosh I've been looking at pictures from magazines of what women's bodies look like and those pictures are absolutely not in any way what women's bodies look like I swear like it really blew my mind I was like whoa all these things that I feel about my body are wrong and freakish like the cellulite all over my thighs and my saggy boobs and stuff like that they're so normal they're the norm I remember looking at the sky that night and you know we were in the wilderness there's no light pollution and there's like all these stars and I just had this profound feeling of like I don't even know what the sky actually looks like because of all this light pollution that I live under and I don't actually know what women's bodies look like because all this media pollution <laughs> that I live under among trans folks you must have been very nervous about going public with this story I, I mean I think it's fair to say that like for myself this symptom of gender dysphoria did have a lot to do with the difficulty of walking around female in this world for many people that's a really offensive thing to hear because it sounds invalidating to their experience of gender dysphoria because it sounds like I'm giving ammunition to people who think that people don't have the right to do these medical interventions, make these choices with their lives. When you did go public, like what kind of reaction did you get from people? Mostly, I've had kind of a lot of trans people reach out and overwhelmingly it's actually been a really nice reaction. Over overwhelmingly, it's like transition was absolutely like the right thing for me. It was what I needed to do to live a happy life. But I'm glad you're speaking up. And I've gotten lots of emails from like other detransition people and other people who like didn't get all the way to a medical intervention, but kind of spent some time figuring out that like, know that they were on the wrong track. I only recently started getting any negative feedback. There's an article that was written about you called Real Life Victims of the Transgender Cult. Can you read a bit from that? I'll, I'll read the first paragraph. More and more parents are stepping out, admitting that their children identify as transgender, that's in quotes, and wanting to do something about it. Schools encourage gender confusion, and doctors reportedly won't even run preliminary tests if a child asks for life-altering treatment. That's also in quotes. 
But before you sign your kids up, listen to the real life stories of people who deeply regret their transition, also in quotes. And what's your response to reading something like that? There are some assertions in this article that I like am about like halfway on board with. And then there's like, okay, transition is in quotes. That's kind of real weird. The transgender cult thing is, is real hyperbolic. And there's this kind of like crisis narrative that my face and my words are being used to tell the story of, right? It's hard because I... Because I am super concerned about people under 18 making these choices because I got it wrong at 30. So I think it would be really easy to get it wrong at 16. And then it's the same time like, but I, I wouldn't talk this way. And, and I don't really want to be affiliated with, I don't know, like I'm, I, I grew up in Cleveland, like the daughter of like a community organizer. Like I'm, I don't, I don't feel hungry to, to, for like right wing, um, affiliations. Uh, I don't know. So did you feel like you had to set the record straight? Like, did I feel, so no, I did not feel the need to set the record straight. I felt like what I said in the videos was what I meant to say. I think in my videos, I've been really consistent from the get-go, saying that for some people, transition is what they need to do to live a happy life. And I feel like dismissing the existence of detransitioned people and kids who desist in their trans identities is so dangerous for kids with gender dysphoria that I, I feel really comfortable with my stance that for adults, this can be a set of choices that is the best for them. Adults should be able to have the right to explore that option. And it is dangerous to act like people don't come out of this process regretful that they came out of the, pro that they did the process. You're creating a situation that specifically helps people exactly like myself harm themselves. I do think that some assessments about psychological conditions where dissociation is a part of the condition are reasonable to include in the process of people getting letters for hormones and surgery. People react to too many assessments as if that's gatekeeping, but I think that that's the kind of process that is very helpful to the patient. Well, that was, that was your experience, right? Like you went into the therapist and you were like, I don't, you know, I'm against gatekeeping. This is what I want to do. And your therapist said, yes. So you're saying you wish that they, that that therapist would have been like, hold on. Yeah, I do. I wish that, I guess I wish, I don't really blame that therapist because if that therapist had said, hold on, I would have been like, you're transphobic bigot. I'm about to call you out all over the internet for putting your transphobia on my face. So I think that that therapist was trying to do her best and trying to be a good person and a good therapist. But I do wish that somehow magically that therapist had been like, interesting. So <laughs> you're telling me that you got raped in college and um, you're telling me that your body doesn't feel real. 
Um, and also, you're also describing these other things that are common of people who dissociate. Maybe let's track these feelings a little bit, keep record of these feelings, and then see if there are other ways of approaching these feelings first. I absolutely like as an individual did not need to live as a man. <laughs> I needed to like get my trauma treated. <laughs> I needed to like work through what needed to happen physiologically so that I could feel like my body was real. And living as a man was never going to do that for me and was probably going to re-traumatize me further. In a perfect world, someone very wise and very gentle would have gotten a hold of me and said like, Wow, let's try out some other stuff. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism call for the federal enforcement of Title IX with the Dear Betsy campaign. Now, we've been diving a bit deep into some of the philosophy and logistics of gender dysphoria today, but the real world is still out there with Trump and the rest of them working to make life hard for people, and we want to remember that with today's activism. So you hear about Title IX a lot when it comes to athletics, but this 45-year-old amendment covers so much more. It states that, quote, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance, unquote. So it's kind of a big deal. Under the Obama administration, the Office for Civil Rights issued Title IX guidance in 2011, 2014, and 2016 that clarified the responsibilities of schools to prevent and address sexual harassment and assault and protecting transgender students from discrimination. That guidance has been instrumental in protecting equal access to education regardless of gender, gender identity, or gender expression. But the Trump administration, unsurprisingly, overturned that guidance in February. Now, that doesn't change the fact that Title IX still legally protects students from gender-based violence and discrimination, but it does take away a powerful tool that trans students and their families had to help them advocate for themselves, and also sends schools a chilling message that discrimination is okay. Now, it was reported that Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos actually would have preferred the guidance to stay in place, but Jeff Sessions disagreed and he got his way and DeVos fell in line. Whatever she really thought, now she's posing a full-blown risk to the future of Title IX. By saying the administration should relinquish the responsibility of enforcing Title IX to the states, students across the country are at risk. Help fight this attack on vulnerable students by getting involved with the Dear Betsy campaign at DearBetsyIX.com. That's Dear Betsy, the Roman numerals for the number 9.com. There you will find the campaign's demands, a social media toolkit to help you communicate why Title IX enforcement matters to you using the hashtag DearBetsy, 
call scripts and phone numbers for calling the Department of Education, and other ways to get involved, such as lending your story to the campaign or writing an op-ed. If you're in need of more guidance or assistance on Title IX and how the rollback of these guidelines may affect you or your child, we encourage you to visit the National Center for Transgender Equality's School Action Center on their website, transequality.org. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if making sure an equal opportunity to education comes with protection from discrimination is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about calling for the federal enforcement of Title IX with the Dear Betsy campaign via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage there's something else I want to ask you about because I was sort of thrown off about this initially. I heard that you hate the idea of passing. And as a person who's totally focused on myself and my experience, I was like thought you were talking about passing as a, as a term as applies to race, black and white passing, mm-hmm. like white pe- mm-hmm. black people who are super light skinned as the idea of black people who are very light skinned could pass for white, a.k.a. my two and a half year old daughter. But you're talking about a different type of passing. Can you talk about that and why you hate that idea or the term? Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've done some, uh, a lot of my work has been about trying to complicate the specifically language that's used around trans women and some of it, how it can also create and amplify misconceptions and stereotypes. And so I think that the term passing for me, again, with this point of like bell hooks talking about language being a place of struggle, um, passing as a term for me, I think is really problematic in the sense that it's saying that in a sense that trans women are trying to pass ourselves off as quote unquote real women. And we know that what they really mean is that trans women are trying to pass themselves off as cisgender women when I don't think that that's the ultimate goal of a lot of trans women. I think that we are women. We know ourselves to be women. We live in the world as women. So we're just being ourselves. Now, what we're talking about is that the cis gaze that looks onto our bodies and looks onto our identities are just seeing us as blending in. They take us as cisgender women because they see cisgender women as the barometer or as the ideal of what a woman is when we know women to be so many different things beyond just cis and or trans. And so for me, it's about um, kind of checking that language and shifting the way in which we think about that. Um, I'm not actively passing, if you use it as a verb, trying to say that I'm doing something, I'm engaged in a process, when all I am is engaged in a process of being myself and the things that you thrust into my body or any other person's body that you pass on the street is your stuff that you projecting onto me. And so for me, I... I, I prefer the term of just I'm being myself. And so like passing versus being is something that I'm often quoted about talking about. Um, but it's not that I hate the term passing. It's just I think that we don't have to accept language that someone else created for us to describe us and to describe our experiences. And so as a writer, I try to create um, narratives and try to just, you know, shift and complicate um, the way in which we talk about these issues. Because even I was just sitting on a couch 
on a talk show the other day and someone was like, Oh, so you're passing as a woman. And you know, in this space, it's like a daytime talk show. So I'm not going to, didn't want to like check and challenge her because I knew that she meant and she, she meant well and she was well intentioned. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to turn it into like an awkward moment. But you know, there was a sense of like, ugh. You know, because she's saying I'm passing yeah. as a woman, right? Instead of just saying that when most people see you, they see you as a cisgender woman. But, you know, she didn't have language to say cisgender. Right. Um, and I don't think she thought as deeply about it as I do. And so I think that part of my work is trying to think a bit more deeply so that people can have accessible language to also check and challenge the way in which they've learned about um, trans folk and consume trans folks' bodies. I mean, I'm, obviously, that's something you deal with constantly, that, that narrow definition of uh, womanhood. And there was a you know, a famous comment uh, recently made by the novelist and feminist uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Uh, she said, I don't think it's a good thing to talk about women's issues being exactly the same as the issues of trans women, because I don't think that's true. Um, and she also went on to talk about how there is a certain male privilege uh, that trans women have, um, which, you know, separates, you know, that, 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 that means that you cannot conflate mm-hmm. the two. Um, when you heard that, first of all, I mean, she's an incredible author, incredible writer. When you heard that, how did, how did you react to it? Um, I think I had deeply complicated feelings. Um, I wondered why she was asked the question. Uh, mm. <laughs> and then I also, <laughs> I wondered, um, the next layer of that was also wondering about the spaces in which she came to understand gender, right? She's not an American writer. Um, and so, like, I think even talking about it in that way is different. I also thought that as a writer, um, her using, you know, to to speak back against a lot of the backlash that happened to her because the backlash was deep and real, which I think also speaks to the sense of how um, black people and black women are policed um, and held accountable in, in ways that are a lot more deep than I'd say like white women who have said transphobic stuff for mm. for decades, right, in the feminist movement who have not been checked and challenged in the same way that Chimananda was. Um, and so that those are part of my complicated feelings. But I think also as a writer, I was disappointed that she said that she didn't have the language <laughs> to uh, talk about these issues in a more exacting mm. way. And so that was disappointing because I think that a part of her job, a part of the work that she does is she crafts stories and narratives and, and seeks language and, you know, picks up a, you know, dictionary and thesaurus and seeks out terms and, you know, all of that stuff. So her world is a world of words. Um, but on the other layer, I also think that if she probably was given the opportunity to say what trans women she was talking about, I think she would have a pretty clear idea of who she was talking about. And so um, there was also that complication there. And so for me, also what was disappointing was the sense of that all trans women are like a monolith and that we all come to to our womanhood with the same experience. You know, part of the reason why I decided to step forward when I was 27, I stepped forward and told my story while I was working as an editor at People magazine. And I stepped forward because I never saw anyone like me in media. I never saw a young woman. I never saw one that was thriving. I never saw someone that I felt um, represented me in that sense. Um, because I think a lot of the portraits of transients were largely older, white, um, middle to upper class trans women that I saw in the media. Um, they oftentimes lived their entire lives presenting as white, cisgender, straight men, 
right? And so mm. there is, I think there is something about that experience that, you know, if you live 40 plus years of your life being seen by the world and perceived by the world by one of the most privileged spaces in which you can be seen or the space, um, privileged identities that you can be seen in America, you do have access in ways in which, say, a black trans girl who starts transitioning at, you know, eight to 12 years old does not have that same access to the same experience because she's growing up in a world where she was poor. Um, she was black before she probably even knew that she was trans, which speaks to my own experience. And so I don't, I think I was sad that Chimanana didn't see, um, say me or my, you know, black in, um, my black sister, my black trans sisters as a part of her in some way. But I do think that there are unique issues and I don't think there's anything wrong with stating that, that cis women have, um, different and varying um, experiences and issues than trans women. But I think also when we say cis women, we have to also realize that black cis women have different experiences than white cis women, right? And that, you know, black trans women have different experience than experiences than white trans women. And so, I think that we just need to complicate when we talk about, when we say woman, we need to be more exacting with our terms and about who we're speaking about and how we're speaking about them. And when we don't have the answers and we don't know, I think that one of the most powerful yet vulnerable things to do is just to say, you know what, I don't know. And I don't think I'm the best person to be asked this right now, or let me get back to you on that. Oh, that's incredible. I, I, I mean, your answer is just incredible. And, and I just want to say the the, the beginning of, of your answer, I found really fascinating, just the idea of you know, was was she trapped by the writer? Why did the writer ask that question? And the idea of like what like it's it almost feels like w was someone trying to cause trouble? Was somebody trying mm. to 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 put this light on her? To, and then you were saying how like immediately she got attacked in a certain way. Why was she attacked? And uh, that's that's brutal. And that's that seems very reasonable. Yeah, that's probably part of what happened. Yeah, completely. And I think that, it, you know, asking the question, I think there's nothing wrong with asking the question, but I wonder what the intention was, you know, assuming these were two cis people sitting in the room having a conversation and then all of a sudden transness comes up. I don't know what was happening that week, like who was, you know, maybe Caitlin was around talking about something. And so, mm. you know, that's where Chimananda was coming from or maybe where <clears throat> the interviewer was coming from in that sense. But, you know, yeah, I think that one of the things we can all learn is to just learn to say that, you know what, I probably need to go investigate this a little right. bit more before I speak on it. Um, but I do think that it's, for me, there is a sense of like one of the um, most visible and vocal um, feminist on a global stage would be her as a writer. Um, her words have been, you know, part of pop culture lexicon now through Beyonce. And so I think that there is this sense of like she just because she has been able to articulate so eloquently about the need for gender equality that she's seen as an expert on feminism where she is just she's a feminist. Right. And she cannot speak about every single woman's experience. And none of us can. But then we also have to have the agency to recognize um, our own smallness and humbleness in this space to say that we don't have the answers for every experience and you know what i'm gonna go i'm gonna go like learn about that first before i actually start speaking about it what it does too is that then people when someone like her who's celebrated is then pulled off of her quote-unquote pedestal and put in her quote-unquote place it then makes other people feel as if i'm not talking about that issue at all like i'm not gonna even think about trans people or trans women i'm not gonna 
even try to speak about these issues because you see what can happen to her. What happened to her? Mm-hmm. It can happen to me. And so I think it creates this sense of like um, complacency in a lot of folk who are watching, who are just like, okay, I'm not going to try to be truly intersectional in my work because you can see what can happen when you try to speak about these issues that are not necessarily your issues, or you try to move beyond your own personal experience and talk about something that's that doesn't necessarily completely intersect with your own. We heard clips today starting with a TED Talk by Norman Spack describing the nuances of the care that's taken when assessing and helping teens transition. Sex Out Loud spoke with Julia Serrano to explain the concept and ideology of the so-called trans-exclusionary radical feminists. The Trans Advocate presented an essay, The Eager Child, about the care and patience that is needed when raising a child expressing dysphoria with their gender assigned at birth. Love and Radio presented the story of one woman's detransition. Our activism for today is in support of the full enforcement of Title IX. And finally, we just heard Janet Mock being interviewed on Politically Reactive about working for an inclusive and humble discussion about the wide spectrum of women and their varied experiences. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. Unfortunately, no voicemails today, as I have a few thoughts on my own that I want to share on this topic, because if what you were thinking was that what this episode was missing was just a few more opinions from a straight cis white guy, then never fear, I am here to fill that gap. Now, of course, I don't think I'm going to say anything that experts in the field don't already know. I'm just trying to describe the basic landscape as I've come to understand it based on all of the listening and reading that I've been doing on the subject. Uh, So here is the most interesting aspect of the story that I don't think has been covered so far, and it's that there seem to be two main groups of people who respond to news, news, data, research, anything like that, about trans people. Now, there's the group that I try to be in, the supporters, and there's the other group, the co-opters. Now, they'll take a story, like some percentage of children who claim to be trans when they're very young grow out of it and realize that it turns out they're just gay. Now, we heard reference to this kind of research in the first clip today. That was the TED Talk uh, given by the doctor. Uh, And to be clear, this research is in question. There is debate about the validity of the research, but the exact percentages... I don't think are really the point. If it's only 5% of small children, or if it's 85% of young children, and and that turn out to, you know, they grow up and they just decide to stay the gender that they are, but it turns out they're gender nonconforming or gay or, you know, any variety of things, it wouldn't change my reaction to that news. I, I think that some percentage of kids do that. I, it would be strange if they didn't. I mean, Kids are dumb. If you ever met a kid, they don't know what's going on. So yeah, they, they think that they're a different gender. And then like 10 years goes by and they figure it out and they have a different perspective. Not that complicated. So my reaction to that news, regardless of the exact percentage, is that, well, okay, so we should be careful, be supportive, but build protocols that lovingly guide the process. And we sort of build guardrails, not gatehouses and gatekeepers in the process of transitioning a child. And that that was described in today's show. So that's not that complicated. And I'm not saying anything that the experts don't know. Obviously, they've said it. 
On the other hand, there are the co-opters, and they will often take this same kind of story, and they'll say, oh, look, it says that, uh, you know, some percentage, they'll say a very high percentage, but they'll say, uh, you know, percentage of children who claim to be trans grow out of it, and they realize that they're not trans after all. And they'll take that, and they'll use it as a scare tactic, saying, see, the trans movement is out of control. The advocates are leading these children down the path to being trans, even though they'll regret it later. And these kids are being mutilated, and their lives are being ruined in the process. So you see the difference. One takes in that new information and looks for ways to incorporate this new information in a way that helps people. The other takes the information and looks for a way to turn it into a weapon to fight this battle that they wanted to fight anyway, because they are anti-trans. They want to find reasons to argue against trans people and their existence in general. So this is also sometimes called concern trolling, basically someone who pretends to only be expressing concern, but is really looking to derail the discussion or argue their own point of view. And you can take another story like this, you know, so a a small percentage of people uh, who think they are trans later come to regret it, and some even detransition. We heard one of those stories today. And a supporter will look at that and they'll say, oh, geez, you know, I thought things were complicated, but it turns out they're even more complicated than I thought. And again, it just reinforces the importance of needing to make sure that these conversations we're having or counseling that's being had includes loving and supportive discussions that explore every possibility for the dysphoria a person is feeling. That's what the detransitioned person we heard on today's show was wishing for, you know, a patient, caring doctor or counselor who could have explored her trauma without appearing as a gatekeeper, or worse, a co-opter who turns out to not be supportive at all. Now, again, on the other side, a co-opter will look at that same story and they'll say, hey, look, people detransition, It turns out choosing your gender really is a choice. You can think you're one thing, and then you think it's, you know, another thing another day, and that turns into men can go into bathrooms whenever they want because they decide on a given day that they're a woman, or, hey, it's a choice, so they don't deserve equal rights, or they don't deserve to use public bathrooms at all, or they don't deserve to be called to their desired name, or they don't deserve to be addressed with their preferred gender pronouns. Basically, they don't deserve to exist as equal human beings as the rest of us because they've made a bad choice. So again, they take this true story and turn it into a weapon to fight the battle that they wanted to fight anyways. And all of this co-opting, I think, actually creates a third major group, the silencers. These are trans people and their allies who want to refute or deny any new stories that come out that could in any way be turned into a weapon against them. And, I mean, that that's on the surface. If you don't know anything about it, you think, well, that's silly. They're, they're, that's like being a science denier, right? Or a climate denier. But just take a step back and think about it for a moment. Make no mistake, trans people are under attack. They always have been, but as their visibility grows, so does the opposition. And obviously, we're not just talking political attacks. I'm talking physical attacks. Trans people are at a significantly higher risk of being murdered for a variety of reasons. So imagine yourself in their position. 
vulnerable, constantly under attack, and every new piece of news or data or research that comes out gets twisted inevitably and turned into a weapon against you. That is a terrifying place to be, and the reaction to attempt to silence is natural and understandable. It's the self-preservation mechanism of a group of people literally fighting for their lives. But what this reminds me of is sort of a very separate subject, defamatory information posted on the internet. So, if, like, have you ever heard of the companies that promise to help you protect your reputation online? And have you ever wondered exactly how they do that? You know, they don't go around scrubbing the internet of all of the bad stuff that's been said about you because that's impossible. Instead, they flood the web with good or neutral stuff so that when people search your name, the bad stuff no longer comes up and all the good or neutral stuff has sort of floated to the top. And it seems to me that that is what is needed in this debate. It's impossible to stop the anti-trans people, either on the right wing or the left wing, from using whatever is at their disposal as weapons in this battle they're waging. Uh, but what we can do is flood the space with positive, caring messages and constructive solutions that take all emerging information into account. So when someone is feeling dysphoric about their gender and either does a search online or talks with friends or therapists or counselors, they need to hear more than just those two extremes. They need to hear all of the facts, all of the nuances, so that they can make the best informed choices for themselves. Like the woman we heard from today, she needed to hear that symptoms of disassociation can be very similar to the feelings of being trans, and that that's something to be explored. But if the supporters shy away from conversations like that because they're so intent on being unquestioningly supportive— then that leaves those details, those facts, those nuances that should be explored, it leaves those only in the hands of the toxic co-opters. And that creates a vicious cycle of defensiveness. So when anything less than unquestioning support ends up sounding like toxic co-opting and gatekeeping. So love, support, nuance, exploration of all the options, this is what needs to be seen as the norm. And you don't get there, I don't think, by playing defense against anti-trans people of any stripe. You get there by flooding the space with open, honest, and supportive dialogue until positivity and nuance become the new normal, because we can't leave all the concern to the concern trolls. Again, to be clear, I don't think that I'm saying anything that the experts and the people on the front lines of this issue don't already know much better than I do, and I am aware, as ever, of all of the pitfalls and the ironies of a straight cis guy trying to explain this stuff. Uh, so if you have something to add, something to correct, anything at all to say about any of this, uh, please call in and leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991, and if you don't want to call get in touch anyway, you can email me, j at bestoftheleft.com. And for more information on this subject, I also highly recommend uh, the very recent article on uh, thestranger.com. It's titled, The Detransitioners, They Were Transgender Until They Weren't. And I think it's a, a pretty well-done, balanced piece, and it touches on a lot of the topics that I got into, but in even more detail. So check that out.
That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. And you can help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and wonder what we're doing